Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we uh, are taken back as we sing these songs to consider your grace, to consider what you've done on our behalf. And as we come to James, Lord, I pray that you'd open our hearts and our minds and our souls to the challenge that James has before us today. It's been a challenge for my heart. I pray it will be for these as well as we break open your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. It has been a long drought when it came to family vacations for the ranch family. The Lord blessed us with children early in our marriage, and we eked out a living for the first nine years or so of our married life. Sure, we had taken trips for weddings and Christmas at Grandma's and all those types of trips, but no real family vacation. You know, the ones where you go to a really nice place and you relax and enjoy creation, unwind, slow down, and do some major family bonding. You know those type of vacations? We had not had one of those. And so it was determined that it was time for the ranch family to go on a family vacation, a real family vacation. The last of our three munchkins had shed the diapers and could communicate in English. (laughs) By the way, she got it down really well and was somewhat sufficient. We saved up our money, rented a cabin up in the Boundary Water area, packed our bags with all our necessities and all the things that brought us joy. The girls stuffed in their dolls and playhouse. Mom had her books and a warm blanket, some shopping money. Joe loaded in his BB gun and some firecrackers that were left over from 4th of July. And of course, I stuffed in the fishing gear. With the canoe fastened securely to the caravan and the back door slammed shut, all the munchkins in their place, a quick prayer, and we were on our way to family vacation. The trip had its problems, of course, but nothing we couldn't handle. We had lived with these three since they were born, and we knew their ways. And so none of this dampened our spirits much. We were on vacation. So eight hours or so of traveling and bathroom stops along the way, we came to our cabin. It wasn't quite as nice as the pictures that we saw, but it was good. Life was good, and we were okay with it. We unpacked, and we settled in our beds, dreaming of all the fun and pleasure in store for us tomorrow. We woke up to the patter of rain, had breakfast, and began to make plans. The girls unpacked their dolls. Joe pulled out his BB gun and shined it off. Mom pulled out her book and a blanket, and I, of course, went out and got the canoe off the caravan and put it in the water and got ready to fish. The rain had let up, and it was time for all the family to do some family bonding out on the canoe fishing, right? (laughs) 
The girls looked at me from the warmth of the cabin with some skepticism. And Joe wanted to know, when are we going to go hunting, Dad? I disappointed him sorely. He always wanted a hunter for a dad, and I never quite matched up to that. And I said to them, you can read your book and play with dolls and hunt anytime. Well, hunt. Hunt in the boundary waters? Really, Joe, come on. You shoot anything up here, they'll haul you in and put you in prison. (laughs) This time of year. We'll have to let the birds and all the creatures go. Let's go kill some fish. Was my sort of argument with him. It's perfectly legal. Can I bring my BB gun? No, you cannot bring your BB gun. Now put the gun away and get out in the boat. The girls bundled and slowly followed with the look at me like, "Mm, this better be good, Dad. With life jackets and gears, we paddled across the lake to the spot and we dropped anchor, untangled poles, baited hooks, fought for a comfortable position, five on a canoe, you can imagine. It was not long before Joe had hooked Danielle's life jacket. (laughs) Emily was reeling in and needed another cast. Danielle was caught on a snag. There was so much ruckus on the canoe we would be lucky if there was a fish within a hundred yards. Dad, why aren't the fish biting? Dad, I'm cold. Dad, I'm hungry. Dad, Joe is bothering me. Dad, when can we go back? Dad, I need to go to the bathroom. (laughs) About that time, the rain began to pitter-patter and then plunk, 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 plunk. It was hopeless on all levels. We pulled anchor, landed in, drenched from head to toe. Fishing was a disaster before it even had a chance to start. As we dried out and warmed up, the battle lines of vacation began to be drawn. I mean, really, why do you go to the boundary waters if it's not for fishing? For nine years, I've been eking out a living and providing for you all. At least you can do is fish decently or try to enjoy it. Let me enjoy my passion. Okay, we can play with dolls late at night, after nine o'clock or so. We can walk around with a BB gun and look like we're hunting for maybe 15 minutes or so. We can snuggle in our blankets and read our books after the rain, when it's raining or after the kids go to bed, this is a fishing vacation, and we're going to have fun. Repeat after me, I want to go fishing. <laughs> or better yet, or better yet, I will go fishing, and you guys can just do whatever you want. I, of course, did not say these things. I thought them, and they slipped out from time to time. And because Dad was leading the way, the whole family played along. It went like this. Argue, fight, pull, plead to do the thing you want to do. Argue, fight, pull, and plead against the thing you don't want to do. And when it looks like you're not going to get your way, pout and cry. 
When you lose the argument and you have to do something that you don't want to do, just bide your time, endure the event, make sure everyone knows that you don't enjoy it, try to make it miserable for everybody else, try to end it as soon as possible so you can get on doing something that you like to do. And then when they actually do the thing that you want to do, then maneuver things so it lasts as long as possible. And you get as much enjoyment out of it as you can. And you don't worry about others. It's all about you getting as much enjoyment as possible. And then there was that ultimate peace. We can just let everybody do their old thing. Wouldn't that be great? Maybe you've had those feelings on family vacations or in other situations. I think we were able to salvage the vacation somewhat. We adapted. And in future family vacations, we set down some rules and regulations to help us out. But it was a chilling reminder that sin can stir up a lot of unrest. And unrest can kill a lot of joy. So I told you that story this morning about the ranch family vacation for a couple of reasons. I wanted to expand on James' introduction as he asks a question. And we'll get to that in just a little while. I'm afraid that as you read James, well, let's just read that verse. Let's turn to James chapter 4, verse 1. And it would be helpful probably for us to just read this because it is sort of where James starts as he challenges us. James 4.1, we'll just read 4.1 for now. What causes quarrels and what causes fightings among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So there's a couple reasons why I introduced the sermon this morning with the ranch family vacation. James sort of asked this question up front. And I wanted to make it a little bit more down to earth and to home for you. I'm afraid if we read 4.1, you might brush it off as old, crusty, first century Jews battling it out in the assembly and let the reality of the challenge that we have before us this morning sort of miss you. I'm sure your ears would have curled up and you would have been horrified to hear some of the quarreling and fighting amongst the Jews at this time in the first century. We do live in Minnesota nice. And we are nice, right? Well, maybe on the surface, maybe. The same passions are alive and well here in this assembly as they are in the day of James. Hopefully, your mind has been awakened to the tension that James is talking about. And secondly... I wanted us to get a clear picture of how our passions really do drive conflict and ruin things. We can chuckle at the ranch family vacation because we know it's uncomfortably true. I hope the story helps you see clearly the foolishness and how easily this plays off into conflicts. And in many ways, what happened to the ranch family is a microcosm of how passions fuel conflict and fighting and quarrels. The vacation conflict could be looked at as just sort of small and insignificant. 
But it is the kind of stuff that bigger and uglier fights are made of. Maybe even a small family vacation-like experience in your past was ruined by passions and still lingers. And passions have grown it into a great big complicated monstrosity. Or maybe it's just an ongoing nagging problem that keeps cropping his head up in your experience. James has something to say to you today. Let's listen to what he has to say. Let's read the entire text here. And as I do that, I will put my outline up here and I'll show you how I'm going to go through this passage. But reading in James 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and let your joy and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. James starts out by asking a question. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? He asks a question like this several times in the book of James, you'll remember, to introduce a topic. He asks the question, and then he answers it with a question. His question is this, what is causing this inward conflict? What is the source, and where does it come from? And he challenges them in his second question to think about it. Is it not this? Is it not this? Think about it. Is it not the passions that are a war within you? Or as it is translated elsewhere, the wars in your members. Passions, the idea of pleasure with a negative connotation self-indulgent pleasure. In the context that I'm going to use here, the text that we're going to use, I'm going to call it selfish pride. James is not condemning all battles and all quarrels, but rather those that find their source in our selfish passions. Our job is to sort of examine, to look at it, find out what the source is and be honest with ourselves. What is the source of these conflicts? And so James seeks to expose the ingredients, the ingredients of unrest, and that's what you see up here in the first point, is the uh, ingredients of unrest. We see 
this selfish passion, weak communication, worldly affections, and self-deception. And so he exposes in verses 2 through 5 the recipe for unrest and inner turmoil. So if, this, if you want unrest and inner turmoil, here's the recipe. Two heaping cups of selfish passion, one of envy and one of coveting. Mix in weak communication with God. Stir often. Season with worldly affection until it's well-saturated and cover completely with self-deception. Put it on low heat and let it stew. It's a recipe that's ripe for anger, for self-pity, uneasiness, grudges, sourness, poutiness, bitterness. It's Satan's brew and it undermines authentic Christianity. So let's take each one of these points and look at them a little closer, if you wouldn't mind. Selfish, selfish passions. The idea I think that James has here, as he says, you desire and do not have. And then he says, you covet and cannot have or, and do not obtain. The two ideas he has here is that of envy and of coveting. Envy usually has to do with others. It's a desire for others to fail and for you to succeed. Envy is frustrated when you do not get what you want and what you think you deserve and when others do. Frustrated envy creates inner tension that is lethal. It says there, you desire and do not have, so you murder. Were these believers that James is writing to actually murdering each other? I Probably not. Not in the first degree anyway, but in other degrees they were. They were fueling envy, and this envy was creating anger, and this anger is the stuff that murder is made of. We just read in, or talked about it in the Sunday school class. It was Cain and Abel, and Cain, what did he do? He envied really Abel and killed him. Joseph and his brothers, there was that envy that they had, that Joseph had something they wanted, and they were going to kill Joseph. And probably if you were to put it up there, envy is maybe the top reason why all murders happen. The desire to have your way and to get the glory and to be in its jealousy. And so we see that. That's what murders are made of, of envy. Obviously, I don't think it had gone to that degree with these believers, but it, it's humbling and something we ought to think about, the degree to which it will end in that way. And then secondly, coveting usually has to do with things. And so you covet and cannot obtain, the scripture says. It is a desire for earthly pleasures that you can consume for yourself. It is, your, it is things that you set your heart on. It's not true satisfaction, and never is it enough. So James says, you cannot obtain. It leaves you with a certain unrest. So as you consider these two thoughts, envy and coveting, a few questions to help you say, do these things affect me or not? Do I get enjoyment, a little enjoyment, out of the failures of others? Is entertainment and things a source of much joy in my life? 
Does the conversation get really interesting when we turn to other people's problems? Does your success create much food for your thought life? Do you stew over how people might perceive you? When things are not going well, does it create a lot of anxiety? I think how you answer these questions might give you an indication if envy and coveting is something that you're dealing with. Probably it is. The second ingredient that we talked about is not only this selfish passion, but it's this weak communion with God. James says in the next verse there, you do not have, or it's the second part of verse two, you do not have because you do not ask. Jesus said, ask and you shall receive. Is James suggesting that what contributes to this inner unrest is just not asking God for the things that we want? Is that what he's suggesting? Well, sort of. He actually is. Some time ago, um, I was gone for a week, and I teach the 4th, 5th, and 6th graders back in the far corner on Wednesday night. We call it YWAP, Youth with a Purpose. Some of you know about that, some of you don't. And I was gone, and so I asked Rich Mullenhauer to teach the kids about prayer. We were going through Luke, and that was the next passage. I think it was this passage where Jesus says, Ask, and ye shall receive. And so he did, and when I got back the next week, I read this to the kids. I said, Ask, and you shall receive. And I asked the kids, Does God give us everything we ask for? And one bright Y-wapper, and we have a bunch of them back there, the future is bright for Eden Baptist Church, raised his hand and he said, Of course not, Mr. Ranch. If God gave us everything we asked for, we would be spoiled. Hit the nail on the head, didn't he, sort of? I was like, into that question, thanks. What God gives us through prayer is not always what we ask for. It's not what we want or what sometimes we would even expect. But it is true, you have not because you ask not. James' first charge against these believers in this area was that they simply do not communicate with God at all. No prayers. No conversation. No asking. No requesting. No frustration expressed. No wishes. No desires. Simply no communication with God at all. God doesn't have anything to work with. As you read the Psalms, you'll see that oftentimes the psalmist goes to the Lord with a request. And then as he works through the request, God gives him something completely different at the end of the psalm. We see that in Psalm 59. It says there, David says in Psalm 59, 1, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who would rise up against me. And I'm sure what David had in mind here was he's on the battlefield. He's hiding. The enemies are on his tail. Lord, I'm going to be dead. Save my life. 
When he gets to the end of the psalm, he says, I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress, a refuge in the day of my distress. David was just looking, I think, initially for physical safety. That's a good thing to pray for. But God gave him something much more valuable than that. Gave him the sense that God was in control, that he was in charge, and there was peace. And that's what David needed, was peace in his heart. He got something better than what he asked for. Second part, or the first part of verse 3 says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James' second charge against these believers in this area is that they have small prayers. No prayers, small prayers. Self-serving, trite, surface, demanding prayers that are fixed on their navel. These types of prayers are just another vehicle to assist them in getting their way and enjoying life the way they want it. These prayers do not open the door of the soul. They're not looking for anything from God than just easier life, more glory, more money. God, help me to feel better. God, help me to do well. Prayed that a couple times this week. God, give me a better job. God, help my wife to submit to my leadership. God, impress upon my husband's heart how important this is to me. Jesus, help my kids obey me. Help my kids enjoy fishing. God, I would really like that phone. Help the other kids to quit picking on me. Help my parents to understand me. Don't let anyone find out what I've done. These are some of the simple prayers that we pray to spend on our passions. These are the types of prayers I think that James is talking about. I think we need to work at making our prayers bigger and deeper and more profound and use the scriptures to help us out in that way. And so we see here weak communion, no prayers, and small prayers equal unrest of the soul. Thirdly, worldly affection. It says here in verse 4, you adulterous people, or maybe better translated, you adulteresses, not because women are more susceptible to worldly passions than men, but because this statement is laden with Old Testament imagery. God as the faithful husband and Israel as the adulterous wife. The prophet often used this type of imagery as they pictured the waywardness of Israel. Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah. This would have gotten the attention of the readers, no doubt. To equate them with adulterous Israel would have shocked the socks off of them. Like calling someone an Islamic terrorist, a traitor. I'm sure you watched the Vikings game this past week. After watching Blair Walsh make three field goals, I think they were all over 45 yards long earlier in the game, it was quite surreal to watch the game-winning 27-yard field goal 
go wide to the left. I'm aware that there's probably not a more dedicated and faithful kicker in the NFL. But for a moment, I have to admit, I thought, did he just throw the game? My mom called me and said, did he throw that game? Maybe she put that thought in my head. I don't know. I know this is not the case. And I do not want to start any rumors here this morning. But imagine with me, if you would, if the next day Blair was photographed hanging around with the coach of the Seattle Seahawks. And then shortly thereafter, it was discovered that his Wells Fargo checking account had been wired $60 million from the general manager of the Seahawks. I'm sorry, but Blair's name would be Mud in Minnesota. He would be an enemy And there would be no safe place for him to live in Minnesota. The papers would go wild. News station, every radio station would be sizzling with the disgust of this traitor that we have on our hands. And even the enemy does not respect such a traitor, does he? Is there any difference when a believer wishes to be a friend of this world? It doesn't seem to gather the same disgust that a traitor on a football team might get. When you're a believer, you give your full alliance to God. You've been purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. There's a real sense that you're married to God, the bride of Christ. What is the world? The world is the system of our society. The value system that defines the highest goals for life as notable experiences, physical beauty, money in the bank, material toys, popularity, freedom to do what I want to do, self-esteem, and self-promotion. That is the world. Friendship of the world is a desire to be accepted, elevated, approved, and glorified by the value system of this world that we live in, of our society. The world and God are not on the same team. They're enemies. Flirting with the world is espionage. It's adultery. It's being a traitor. And it contributes to your inner unrest. Lastly, self-deception. Self-deception in verse 5, and I concentrated a little bit more on the first part of verse 5. It says, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Self-deception in the sense that there are truths about God and about yourself that you do not embrace or consider. You are deceived to go about life as though they really just don't exist at all and they have no bearing upon you. This verse touches on a profound truth, a reality that we have about God. What does it say? That God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made within us. What a profound truth. It ought to spin our heads, and yet it doesn't. 
I like the way the ESV translates the first part of this verse. Or do you suppose it is with no purpose? The scripture says this. It catches the sarcasm, doesn't it? The profound disbelief that the scriptures have no bearing, no purpose that would make a difference in this situation for these believers. These people were living with this self-deception. The truth about God had become commonplace. A slogan on their t-shirts, words on a bracelet, text in a book, but nothing that calmed their soul and affected their lives in a meaningful way. That's the deception I'm talking about. Self-deception. Going about life and not understanding the realities of Scripture bearing on our lives. There's a couple issues with this text. The first one is that the exact words that James quotes are not actually found in the Old Testament. What we have before us are words that summarize a truth that's found throughout the Old Testament storyline and not an exact quote. And we're okay with that. I'm okay with that. The second is that this verse is a very difficult verse to translate. And you may have noticed, if you have a different version in front of you, how differently it's translated in other versions. And so what I've done here is I've, I have a slide up front here that shows how it's translated in the ESV, which says he yearns earnestly over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. And the KJV that says, the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy. So on the one, God speaks positively of God's yearning jealousy for the faithfulness of his people. That their human spirit would fellowship with him. God's desire. It's a positive desire that God wants us to fellowship with him. The other speaks negatively of the human spirit. It's depravity. It's desire to wander away from God, to be unfaithful, and to crave the things of this world. There's a sense that these two ideas that are communicated in these two different translations are really two sides of the same coin, aren't they? One side, we see the faithful, loving concern of God and on the other side we see our waywardness I think the context leans a little bit towards the ESV's interpretation but I'm content to leave the interpretation issue with some tension this morning and not really solve it for you Um, so as you think about it though we know that our human spirit falls short of the demands made by God's jealous love and our spiritual depravity is jealously pulling us away from the love of God. That is the truth. The God, the creator of the universe, deeply wants to rescue his human creatures and give them peace and give them the thing that they need, rest and contentment in their soul and to be rescued. This is the storyline of the Bible. It is what the Bible teaches us about God. It is the truth of God. And our human spirit, it's the truth about God and our human spirit. If this truth about God and our human spirit is just an interesting story, if it's just a cliche, insignificant, has little meaningful bearing on your life, then unrest and inner turmoil will abound. And so we have these Four pieces, selfish passion, weak communication, 
worldly affections, and self-deception that drive us into an unrest. These are the recipes. These are the pieces that drive us to unrest. So at this point of the book, in our text, James has built up to a trans- transition a little bit. And it is sort of the climax of James. This is definitely a climax of our passage, but maybe even the climax of the book itself. And as you think about this, and as we go into verse 4, I have a question for you. Do these elements that we've talked about, their doom and destruction, destruction, is it real to you? Do these things ring true in your experience? Do you have a sense of these elements of unrest in your life? Or do you say, ah, I'm good, no problem here. If that's the case, then I haven't done my job very good this morning. You're not really ready for the rest of the passage. You're not ready for the climax. Hopefully, it's been as convicting, depressing, and troubling to you as it has been for me. Because James has some very good news in the rest of the passage. The bad news makes the good news all the more better. And starting in verse 6, we have that climax, that good news. The first part of verse 6 is really the hinge pin of the passage. And really, it's the hinge pin of Christianity. So listen to it carefully. It says, but God, but he, God, gives more grace. At my first reading through this passage, it looked like that phrase was sort of out of place. It didn't seem to really go with the rest of the passage. But as I looked at it a little bit closer, it, it's, it stands out and says, no, this, this was meant here because it's the very thing that allows verses 6 through 10 to happen. If it wasn't for this grace that God gives... We have no hope. There's really no hope at all. The Bible crumbles. We're left to our own devices. But praise God for the grace of God. It does really make a difference. So let's break it apart here a little bit. The first word says but. There's a lot of hope in that word, isn't there? It is not the end of the matter. There's something else to consider here. In Ephesians 2.1 it says, We were dead in our trespasses and sin." Ephesians 2.4 says, But, praise God, but, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, but the grace of God. But he, but he, God, the creator, apart from God, there is no hope. He initiates, he starts, he is and has to be the initiator of this. It's a gift he gives. It's not earned. It's not purchased. It's not negotiated. It's given. God extends his hand and offers out hope. The God creator gives. And what does he give? The Bible says he gives grace. Unmerited favor that rescues, not helps, like one of the definitions I read, not assists, but rescues us from sin. This grace comes from God's arsenal of love. The offering of grace is epitomized in God's gift of Christ. We find that in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God gave his son. For our sakes, God made Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin, that in Christ we might become 
the righteousness of God. The offering of grace is only possible through Jesus Christ. Romans 5.2 says, To him, Jesus Christ, or I'm sorry, through him, Jesus Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And when God gives us grace, we're able to give others grace. We find that in 2 Corinthians 5:18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. James is talking to Christians in this book. He calls them brothers at the beginning of the book. And so I think he's reminding them of the initial grace that brought them into the family of God. And I think he also is reminding them of the continuing grace that sustains them and sanctifies them. It's really the same grace. The same grace that brought you into the family of God is the same grace that sustains you and moves you on. The gospel is the storehouse of God's grace. And he offers the power to overcome, to have rest. You can overcome through God's grace. You have the wherewithal. You have the supply offered there. God's grace is given freely, but it's not given willy-nilly. God's grace is given freely, but it's not given willy-nilly. There is an aspect of God's grace that is more willy-nilly, if we can use that term. It's called God's common grace. Things like the ability to live, breathe, have some side of order, some kind of order on this planet are all examples of God's common grace. The grace that James has primarily in mind here is not common grace, but rather specific grace that touches the lives of individuals and redeems them and keeps them. If you want this type of grace, there is a requirement. And he tells us what that requirement is. The requirement is humility before God. And in this next section, we're going to talk a little bit about the humility before God and what it is. What are the aspects of humbling ourselves before God? And we'll use these, these points here as we do that. So consider what he says there, though, when he says he gives more grace. He quotes in the last part of 4.6, an Old Testament uh, passage from Proverbs 3.34. He said, God, a quote from that passage, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. If you want to see what this looks like, consider the life of Christ. His interaction with people, cheating, tax collectors, adulterous women, the immoral, sick, weak, low lives, rich young rulers, money exchangers, religious leaders, all sorts of people. Some he opposed and some he gave grace. It was not their sin that was the determining factor. It was their pride. Those that were proud and lifted up in their pride were opposed by Jesus. Those that were humble, no matter how much sin they had committed, were given grace by Jesus. Pride is a tricky tool of Satan. It's used to effectively keep people sinners and the redeemed flat-foot, flat-footed. Pride says, I can do it myself. I'm good enough. I don't need any help. 
I have a reputation that I must keep. Pride can be the reason for a lot of good or supposed good in our lives and self-righteousness, but it is a tool that Satan uses to keep us from the grace of God. But he gives grace, the passage said, to the humble. There is a reality that even the ability for us to humble ourselves before God is given to us by God himself. There is another sense that we're called to do this, to humble ourselves. Both are true. So as we approach a decision, and even as I challenge you here this morning, we certainly weigh on the side of personal responsibility to humble yourselves before God and to respond to this offer. But on the other side, after the act has happened, we realize the ultimate truth that God really has moved and carried us along. If you look back on your choice to be humble or to humble yourself before God and credit your decision and not God, then it was not humility at all, was it? That's how these things work. Humility before God is the solution. A true humility that credits God for all that is accomplished. It is the answer to unrest. John Piper said it this way, The alternative to pride is is wonderful, peaceful contentment of the soul. And I would say, add to that, that's found through submitting and humbling yourselves before God. And so this inner rest that we find in verses 6 through 10, he exposes some of the things that we need to do. I think these are elements or aspects aspects of humility before God that help us sort of get our hands on it. What does it really look like to humble ourselves before God? You'll notice in two of the verses, there's sort of a result. Verse 7 says, and he will flee from you. Satan will flee from you. In verse 8, it says, he will draw near to you. And so submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. We see that response from God or the response that Satan has. I wouldn't make too much of those. I think they're just really general things that happen when we submit ourselves to God and and humble ourselves before him. But as we look at these things, I want to consider these last three points here in this passage and just break them open a little bit. The first element, the first aspect of humbling ourselves before God is to submit ourselves to God. Completely putting yourselves under the authority of God, making him your Lord and Master. Why? Because you can trust him. Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. He's trustworthy. Humble yourself. It's a picture of a slave that's been put underneath or willingly puts himself underneath a master, totally under the power of the master to do whatever he commands. And yet, there's another side to that, isn't there? Depending on who the master is. It could be a horrible, terrible thing if it's a terrible master. But if it's a benevolent, gracious master with great power, he also gains the power of his position. He's no longer on his own. He goes with the power and the backing of the master. The second part of this verse goes part and parcel sort of with the first part. The second part doesn't work without the first part. 
It says, submit yourselves therefore to God and resist the devil. You cannot resist the devil unless you submit yourself to God. Now, I'm sure this is not exactly how things go down in the military, so you military people will have to forgive me. But just suppose, let's pretend a little bit, that you are part of a military expedition, special forces, and you're called to an outpost. The enemy has breached the line. A group of the enemy's minions are in our territory and taking over our land. And you're called to engage the enemy, push them back to where they belong. And so you're shot out of the hall of a U.S. submarine that's positioned underwater in the bay in the area where this is happening. Your special underwater craft bumps up on the shore near the encroachment and you take off towards the enemy. You find the leader and you ambush him and with your knife to his throat, you say, move out of this territory or you and all your men will be dead. And he laughs at you and he says, you think you're going to stop me with that little knife and your measly muscles? (laughs) No. No, I won't. But this will. And you turn him to the bay and the USS Pennsylvania surfaces. And a squadron of F-16s come flying off the horizon and rock the ground and shoot up into the sky and singe the top of the trees. No, that will stop you. I'm not going to stop you, but that will stop you. That's how we do spiritual warfare. We don't do it in our own strength, our measly little knives and our measly little muscles. It doesn't work that way. This picture you see here is of a military person who has submitted himself to the U.S. military and defends our country. He's dead if he's alone. But when he goes bearing the resolve of the U.S. military, he has all the might of the military behind him. He, of course, must do his job. He must resist the enemy. But ultimately, the victory, ultimately, the victory is in the hand of his support. We're called to oppose the devil, and this takes some effort, and it takes some strategy and help from fellow believers. But in our own strength, we will not have success. Ultimately, we find our strength in submitting to God, putting ourselves under God. Secondly, James says, if you're going to humble yourselves before God, this is the second aspect. You need to draw near to God. Humility desires to be close to God. There is a trust in God and a desire to know him that Paul expresses in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. There is a sense that we will never really know him completely, but we need to find our contentment in him and we need to see him for who he really is. You never really appreciate something when you see it from the distance, do you? This past, this past summer, my wife and I went to a wedding out in Wyoming, Douglas, Wyoming, and we took a little bit different route back for various different reasons. You can ask my wife about that. Um, but we came back across I-90 in a part of Wyoming that I really had not been before. 
And we weren't looking for it, but as we were driving across, we spotted Devil's Tower. You can see it from I-90. And this is what it looks like. And when I looked at it from the distance, I said, not very impressed. Nice rock. Sort of a wannabe mountain, that looks like to me. That's what it looks like from a distance. Not very impressive. Obviously, you that have taken a closer look at Devil's Rock or Devil's uh, Tower know and appreciated it probably a little bit more than I do. As you draw closer to it here, you start seeing that it has some characters, some interesting parts to it. And as you get closer, you see it even better. You get right up on it. It's quite interesting, quite mammoth, quite breathtaking. And some... Do this. Try to climb up it. This guy's getting a really close view. It looks like a Rosemeyer vacation, maybe. <laughs> and so as you zoom in and you get closer, there are more details that you see. You appreciate its size and its beauty. You see its ridges and its columns, the huge rocks that look like they're going to be falling, and the rocks at the bottom that have fallen, and the height and the distance. And I'm sure... It's quite a view from the top of this rock. It's the same way with God. From a distance, he doesn't make much of an impact. You really don't see him for who he is. You do not appreciate his contours, his edges, his ridges, and his facets. John Piper says it this way. The word God is not an empty symbol in the Bible. God has character. God has condors, contours. That means some things are true about him and some things aren't. The whole Bible is given to us by God so that the word God would carry truckloads of meaning for us. And so that when we say my contentment is in God, we mean something glorious by God. There's another aspect that I think that you lose from a distance, and that's perspective. I think I could have got out of the car and took one of those pictures where I put my hand like this, and that rock would have been on top of my hand. Devil's Castle from I-90 looks pretty small, pretty pretty puny. I look huge, big. But it's not reality, is it? The reality is not that I'm big and the rock is small. The reality is the rock is big and I am small. Our perspective is wrong when we get far away from God. He's small, we're big. Our problems are big, God's solutions are small. And that's what happens when you're far from God. Draw near to him. See how big and wonderful and great he is. We also see something amazing in this verse, don't we? There's a response from God in this act of drawing us near to him. It says here that he draws near to us. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. God is our heavenly father who loves his children to come near to him and to hold out and to hold them in his arms. 
the verse before says, he yearnestly, he earn, I mean, he yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. It is a picture of the father of the prodigal son seeing him afar and coming running. This is our heavenly father. It's a sweet promise of scripture. If you humiliate, if you humble yourselves before God, he will draw near to you. And in humbleness, God responds with his loving arms. We're talking about the creator of the universe, God, very God. Is there a contentment in this? You betcha. There's a lot of contentment in this. God is a rewarder of those who seek him. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And then the last point we find in verses, at the end of verse 8 and at the beginning of and verse 9, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and let your joy be turned into gloom. The final, final item, that, that final aspect of humbleness before God is that of repentance. There is a requiring cleaning that you need. If you're going to draw near to God and expect that he's going to draw near to you, you need some cleaning. You're filthy and you're dirty. And God does not snuggle with muck. James grabs his readers' attention, calling them sinners, double-minded. He calls the brothers. He calls them brothers in verse two. But here he's trying to get their attention. Hey, you sinner, you double-minded person. There's two parts to this cleansing that we see. We see it in Psalm 23:24:3. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? He who has a clean hand. And a pure heart. It's the same thing that James is talking about. Clean hands. Those deeds that we have done. People we have wronged. Things we have said. Heart. Disposition. Our thoughts. Our desires. Our lust. Our envy. Our coveting. And disregard. He says, clean them. Clean them. There is a cleaning available through the blood of the Lamb that washes as white as snow. Forgiveness for sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. If we confess our sins before him, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from that sin. What a great promise that we have. Purify your heart. The second part of that is repentance that James is talking about is a, usually comes associated with sorrow. He says, be wretched, mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gleam. We're not comfortable with sorrow, are we? Mourning and weeping, it's downright embarrassing. Water running out of your eyes and out of your nose, drooling out of the corners of your mouth, smearing your makeup, red face, contorted. We sort of say, hey, get a hold of yourself. Grab a hold of yourself a little bit here. And get, then we can talk some reason. You know, we really need to allow sorrow to do its work. We need some sorrow. Maybe you need a a good cry. It wasn't too long ago, a couple months ago, we watched a movie about Inside Out. Maybe you've seen this movie. It makes a really good point about sorrow in our lives. That sorrow has its place. And even though joy is the thing that we think we need, Oftentimes, God's used sorrow in our lives to move us and transform us. Sorrow 
for sin is a glorious thing to God. Maybe you need a good cry. Not a pity party, but a real cry about passions and friendships. God says, be wretched, mourn, and cry. Not in a trumped-up way, but in a genuine way. Repentance without sorrow is hardly repentance at all, is it? It lacks a sense that our sin is against God and that we've been disloyal. You have turned back on the graciousness of God. Repent, and he will wash you as white as snow. What a tremendous blessing. In verse 10, James ends this passage or this section here by saying this. He makes a command. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Renounce all self-reliance, self-exaltation, self-rule at the heart level, at the appearance level, at the action level. Calm, find your calm, quiet, deep soul satisfaction and contentment in God. I know it's a little bit late, but I have a concluding story that I've got to share with you before we go here. Thank you for being patient with me as I rattled on just a little bit too much. But what would a challenge from Mr. Ranch be without a Billy Bob and Johnny story, really? We've got to end that way today, guys. As some of you know, Billy Bob and Johnny are fictional characters that do my bidding, help me teach kids about God. And so I use them often to challenge the kids and make them think a little bit about spiritual things. In this case, Billy Bob and Johnny live on a farm with Uncle Tom, and it's down south where it's really hot. We would love some of that weather right now, but it was that time of year, and it was really hot, and the boys found a very nice, comfortable place to get out of the heat, and it was in the basement of the barn. And Uncle Tom noticed that they were hanging around out there in the barn, in the basement, and he warned them. He said, hey, guys, you can hang out down here, but I don't want you playing soccer and games down here. There's a water pipe, a couple water pipes that run along down these walls, and if one of those balls hits that water pipe, it's going to break, and this basement will fill up with water, and I have feet over here that will get spoiled. So just don't do it. Enjoy, relax down here, but just don't. Well, it wasn't too long. The boys were down in the basement, and they noticed something over in the corner. It was a soccer ball. Who would have thought? A soccer ball. They looked a little bit closer at it. It was a brand new soccer ball. It was the one that Johnny had gotten three months ago and lost. Somehow, it had found its way down here. Well, what do you do with the soccer ball but kick it around a little bit, right? And so the boys kicked it around a little bit, and one thing led to another. And before long, they were getting a little competitive. And they kicked the ball over, and it hit the water pipe, and the water pipe went, whoa, 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 whoa. Nothing happened. They thought, well, Uncle Tom doesn't know what he's talking about. Perfectly safe down here. We can play soccer as much as we want. They were confirmed in their disobedience. And so as later times went on, competitive got a little bit more competitive and they needed a little bit more equipment. They grabbed a rope from upstairs and tied it off to the water pipe and tied it off on the other side to an old rusty nail and then hung a couple of ropes down from that rope and that was their goal. And it was a great time down there kicking the ball and whatnot. Well, it so happened 
that Johnny was going with, on offense and Billy Bob was defending the goal and Johnny kicked the goal wide to the right. And Billy Bob jumped for all of his might and his foot got tangled up in the rope and he came down with all his weight on the rope and the water pipe came yanked out of the side of the wall and water started spewing out. Johnny said, Billy Bob, get over there and scuff that thing. Do something with it. And Billy Bob ran over there trying to put his hand over it, getting wet. Johnny ran out and got some buckets and some duct tape. He threw the duct tape over to Billy Bob and said, wrap it up with that. I'll be bailing the water. And the boys are going at it as fast as they can. But the water is just coming. The duct tape ain't working, by the way. It's coming. It's just pouring out of there. And soon the water is up to the pallet. It's halfway to the pallet. It's going to get to the feed. And the boys are working as hard as they can, sweating, grueling. Billy Bob thinks Johnny has the easy job. And Johnny thinks Billy Bob has the easy job. And they're fighting a little bit. And we're all sort of thinking as I tell this story, Billy Bob, Johnny, you guys are crazy. You are never going to stop that water. Go into the house. And throw yourself at the mercy of Uncle Tom. You need his help. They're not going to do it. We know that. And the boys finally come to their senses. We're not going to stop this. And so they run into the house with tears and mud and water and everything. And they confess to Uncle Tom, we did the wrong thing. Who can punish us forever, but the water is running and we got to stop it. We need help. Help us. And of course, Tom, Uncle Tom, with his open hands, grabs them and gives them a hug and heads outside with his helpful hands and shuts the water off and they clean up the mess. I tell you that story because I want you to think about it a little bit. The water line is busted, isn't it? We're sinners. We got a mess. This verse shows a lot of that mess. And you know, the only hope for Billy Bob and Johnny was to throw themselves at the mercy of Uncle Tom. That's the only hope we have. Throw ourselves at the mercy of God. Humble ourselves before him. Tell him, maybe this afternoon you need to pick up the phone and call somebody and set up a meeting and confess some things. Maybe you've listened to this and you go, you know, when you're talking about being married to God, That seems a little strange. Can you really be married to God? Yeah, you can. There is a step step of initial faith whereby you place yourself underneath God's control and say, I am going to be yours. A wedding vow of sorts, a faith vow that you are going to believe and trust and be a soldier of Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to make that decision today. Whatever it is, Please search us out. love to talk to you. So would other elders. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful for this passage. It's been a challenge. I've been a little long-winded. I pray that your people would be gracious as they consider these passages that we've read and to consider the great hope that we have in the grace of God, that there is forgiveness of sin. If we humble ourselves before you, there is great hope. There's a God that's there to rescue us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.